0: So we're doing Lesson 13, and it's entitled Final Restoration and Unity. One of our online listeners, Terry Utt, sent a link to a short five-minute video produced by the United States Air Force, filmed in the National Cathedral just this year, and, and he said he wished our church would have made this video. And so as I show it to you, I want you to consider metaphors that are illustrated in this short video. So let's watch this video together.
1: This is the sound
0: As you think about that, if you would like to actually have that for yourself, just go to YouTube, type in Air Force One Voice. Let's, let's just unpack before we get into the lesson, because we're talking about unity and the final restoration, and unity is lesson of the title. What metaphors were illustrated besides just obviously the one voice? Did you see a conductor? Did you see a high priest conducting all the individuals? Was the conductor actually making the music? Or he's organizing all the lives. Now were all the members up there on the stage in a single uniform? I mean, wearing the same uniform. They were all in the Air Force uniform. Okay, did you see in the metaphor people in their white robes, the high pri- the priest, the daily priest, and your high priest and your daily priest in their white robes? Now were they all playing the same notes? No, they were not playing the same notes. But were they all playing the same song? And then from the song conducted by the high priest into the, into the daily priests that are singing the song and, and the song of unity and love and so forth, did you notice a great multitude that responded to the song and began singing the song too? Do you, this, this is a metaphor for the 144,000 at the end of time. God is waiting for the 144,000 to be sealed in their forehead and then the and the four winds loosen and a great multitude from their witness comes. But what is the what is the one song that the church is supposed to be singing? God is love. The song of love, God's... Not emotional, not sentimentalism. The functional, operational love of God's character and how reality is built to operate on these principles of love. And and when we sing that song, then we can sing different notes. But they're always in harmony. So we could sing if we wanted to about the Sabbath. But the Sabbath would be sung about in a way that demonstrates the God of love who has given us a gift for our restoration and healing, not an authoritarian dictator who's watching to punish you if you don't do the right thing on the right day. And that's where we can have lots of different instruments. There are different instruments being played. There are different vocal parts being sung. But there is perfect harmony. Do we have perfect harmony in the church today? And I'm going to tell you, when you start, start dissecting things through that legal definition kind of way, it, it causes discord. It causes division. We're not listening to the conductor anymore. Anyway, I thought, you probably tell, I thought it was very powerful. That was a beautiful metaphor. And, uh, and we, will, we will, the link is in our notes and we will post it on our Facebook page. Uh, later in the week but as we move into the lesson sabbath's lesson the title for the lesson final restoration and unity when you hear final restoration and unity do you get excited do you get enthusiastic or do you get afraid do you get anxious do you get nervous The memory text from the New King James says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look to a new heaven and a new earth which is in which righteousness dwells. What is righteousness? Pardon? A right... A right standing? The correct thing? A state of being... Would righteousness... The state of being righteous... Righteousness, the state of being righteous, which, which means to be morally upright, to be, um, which is defined by what? How do we define what moral uprightness is? It depends on which law. We're, already, we're always back to the question. How do you understand God's law? It always brings us back to that. Do we understand it as a list of rules to behaviorally conform to and if you do the right things, then you are righteous because you've kept the right rules or do we understand it as a design for living that only our creator can restore within us to put us right, to set us right, to recreate us right in the right way with the right heart, motives, attitudes, understandings. I'm going to read you a quote from Ellen White that some might use to promote the legal penal view of righteousness but I'm going to insert thoughts and ideas particularly some definitions from her so that when we hear these terms we can realize she's not talking penal legal even though many people use these quotes like this in penal legal ways the challenge for each of us as we hear things is to understand reality so clearly that we can see what's truly being talked about and not buy into the to the distortion the the darkness that covers the minds of so many and this uh, other and this other thing so here's a quote It's found in um, (coughs) Faith and Works, page 101. Righteousness is obedience to the law. The law demands righteousness, and this the sinner owes to the law. Do you hear that? Do you see how this could be used in a forensic legal way? Well, what does it mean? First off, you should always ask, what law? What law is it talking about? And is it talking about design laws, protocols upon which reality are built, or a system of rules that require enforcement? And once you go to the design law, you understand that the law demands righteousness in the same way that the law of respiration demands that you breathe. And it does. The law of respiration demands that you breathe. You go, well, that's unfair. That's a lot of work. I, I, I shouldn't have to breathe. I should be able to just jump underwater and be able to live. When you understand how design law works, you understand that the law is not an imposition. You don't get up in the morning and go, oh man, I've got to breathe today. You don't do that. Keep on with the quote. The sinner owes, um, the sinner owes this obedience to the law. We owe it. Why? Because that's the basis of life. Okay, uh, But he is incapable of rendering it. Why are we incapable of rendering it? When did you make the choice? When did you stand up and say, God, I don't want to be capable of living in harmony with your law. I don't want to be capable of doing that. When did you ever make that choice? Get your mind around that you never made the choice. You were born incapable. Which means you don't have to feel guilty for it. Because you didn't put yourself in that position. HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman, get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. What did the baby do wrong? Nothing. But does the baby have a condition with which it's born that if without remedy will result in its death? That's every human being since Adam and Eve. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a condition, a weakened state. We are not capable of rendering this type of living in harmony with how he built life. We are self-centeredness. We don't need to feel guilty for the condition. We need to acknowledge we have the condition. And then a free remedy is offered to that child. The child has said, here's your antivirals. We'll give them to you for free. And they're side effect. And you'll actually feel better if you take them. But the child refuses them. Will that be their fault? It's not their fault they have the condition. It's their fault they refuse the remedy. That's every human being. God through Christ has provided remedy to this condition. We're not responsible we have the condition, but we will be responsible to refuse the remedy that transforms and heals us. Keep going with the quote. We're incapable of rendering it. The only way in which he can attain to righteousness is through faith. What do you understand that to mean? Believing things that aren't so? Suspending your reasoning? Believing without evidence? Just have faith in things that make no sense? Is that what that means? Or does it mean to exercise trust? Is that what faith means? To exercise trust. And trust in what or who? The quote. By faith he can bring to God the merits of Christ and the Lord places the obedience of his son to the sinner's account. This is legal, Dr. Jennings. This is legal. You're just showing up. You're saying, I claim the blood of Jesus. I claim the life of Jesus and go over to a record book somewhere and we adjust in the accounts over here. That's, it's, it's legal, right? Is that what you hear? First off, does faith, by faith we can bring, does faith mean the exercising of trust? Is that what that means? Trust and confidence in Christ. And what are the merits of Christ? When you hear the word merits of Christ, what comes to mind? What do you understand that to mean? His traits of character. His perfect character. That's what the merits mean. Look it up in the dictionary. Okay, they're the attributes of Christ. That's what that means. Not Not the legal works of Christ. The attributes that he developed in himself. These are the merits of Christ, okay? The attributes of Christ, and what account? What account? Would it be our heavenly record? Okay, and, and, and what is recorded in the heavenly record? Well, here's a quote, right, so that's, and here's a quote from the same author, and this is why it's so important you have a good data set. You have to actually understand the meaning of what the author's talking about, Possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, as He he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law. Why does he see it? Because it's been reproduced in us. This legal penal thing cheats people. It cheats people. It sets an expectation up in their mind and they're told by the theologians, by the preachers, when you accept Jesus, you are in heaven, declared to be righteous by God in your account, legally in heaven, even though you're not righteous. That's what they're told. They create a fraud. They create God out to be a liar. What's it say in Second Corinthians. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so so that we might, what's the word, become the righteousness of God. But the legal penal view denies that. It's that we might be declared the righteousness of God. It's a fraud. It's like having uh, that HIV infection and you go to some uh, facility and at the facility you're told all you have to do is believe that in the hospital they're going to declare that you don't have HIV and then in the hospital there's an administrator who will work as your advocate and will get your health records and take all the record of the HIV out and you'll be declared to be HIV free even though you're not. How does that work for people?
2: But in their paradigm, in the legal paradigm, they've been declared Innocent. Now you're burdening them because they know they're not innocent. They know that they're bad and they can't hold on to that peace that they had knowing that they were declared innocent.
0: Yes, so again, another fraud. In what universe is it true that Adam, because we're talking the species human now, that Adam never disobeyed? Innocence means you actually didn't do the wrong. That's what it means. To be innocent, you didn't actually do it. And this is, again, the fraud of the legal system. They want God to declare innocent people who were born in sin, conceived iniquity, and the whole species human who, in Adam, actually did wrong. That's a lie. And so the whole thing is a house of cards built upon itself based on a false premise that God's law functions like human law. And once you replace that lie, God's law functions like human law, with design law, the entire house of cards collapse. And the Adventist church was called into existence for the purpose of taking a final message of mercy to the world. And the message was, be in awe of God. Fear God, give glory. Give glory, in other words, reveal his character in your character for the time in human history has come, the hour of his judgment, the time in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. To stop judging him and seeing him as this imperial dictator, worship him who made the heavens and the earth. Is he worship the designer and creator? Because Babylon, that's fallen, that system of imperialism with all of its middle, millions of different little rules and different little interpretations. We have thirty four thousand different Christian groups, all arguing with themselves because we can dissect it and divide it this way. Because we, because that's what human law does. It's fallen. It's corrupt. <laughs> And so we have a message that will call people back to worship our designer. The worship and come back to see him for who he is and it's healing and transforming. And and the the final portion of the quote after it read, God receives pardons, justifies the repentant believing soul, treats him as though he were righteous because why? Because he actually is. He's become righteous because he has the righteousness of Christ in him. It would be like The doctor treats the person who has been cured of their condition as if they don't have the condition. Why do we treat them as if they don't have the condition? Because they don't. That's reality. This is why God treats us as righteous, because through Christ we've been made righteous. Okay? And so this is the next sentence in her quote. This is how faith is accounted righteousness. How? By making the person righteous. And so if you actually read in the, in the uh, Greek New Testament in R- R- Romans chapter 4, where it talks about Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, the word there, accounted in the Greek, if you actually look it up in any lexicon, it says this has to do with what actually exists. If you account or reckon that you have $8 in your bank account, it's because you actually have $8 in your bank account. This word cannot mean accounting for something that doesn't already exist. Just like an accountant who accounts your your bank account. They will account what's actually there. And so he was accounted to be righteous because he had faith in God, which means what? What's the natural state of the human heart in sin, according to Romans? Enmity. Enmity. Now, is the heart that's in enmity with God, is that a heart that trusts him? Or is a heart that distrusts him? So Abraham trusted or had faith in God, which means his heart changed from distrust to trust. And only after he was set right in his heart, his heart was put right, then he was recognized as being right or being just or being justified or being rightified or being righteous, because he was. That's the reality, and that reality is obscured in this penal legal lie. And people don't even expect to have a right heart. They're told you're not going to be. You're not going to be have a right heart. You're not going to be set right. You're going to live and continue ongoing selfishness and fear and sinfulness. And but you'll be declared right. So don't worry about it. It's all covered. It's all good.
2: So what do they do with the text that says, "Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect."
0: Well, you're declared perfect in Jesus. You're perfect in Jesus. Jesus is perfect, and so we accept him as your Savior. Then that's applied to your account, and so you are perfect through the legal merits of Jesus applied to your account. That's how you're perfect. It's a fraud. It's a lie. It's a corruption. And this church will never take the message to lighten the world and prepare people as long as we are still promoting this distortion of Rome. So out of the... Uh, Oh, and she ends up quoting um, from Titus in, in her quote. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Notice what, how we're saved? By the washing and regeneration.
2: Renewing.
0: and the renewing right exactly which he shed which he shed on us abundantly through jesus christ our savior that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life and so is this a legal thing that titus is paul is describing in titus where it's a regeneration renewing recreating in the believer yes so
2: what is biblical perfection then
0: so biblical perfection is maturity Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, talking about Christ, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect, wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Sinlessness is not Bible perfection. Adam was sinless in Eden prior to his sin, but he wasn't yet perfect. Bible perfection is about maturity of character where you have achieved in your character the solidification of godly principles so you can't be shaken out of it. That's biblical perfection. So once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. And so Christ came as a human and developed a perfect human character. This he offers as a free gift to all of us. So um, this is uh, Titus 3 out of uh, The Remedy, verses 4 through 8. But when our God and Savior appeared with the kindness and love of God, he healed us. He procured the remedy. We could not do it ourselves, neither have we contributed anything to the cure. He did it because of his compassion. He heals us through the work of the Holy Spirit who cleanses our hearts and minds by taking what Christ achieved and generously reproducing it in us, so that having been regenerated by To having been regenerated to be right in heart by the remedy Christ achieved, we actually receive eternal life. This is the truth. I want you to make this truth clear so that those who have partaken of the remedy and trust God will focus their resources on doing good for living in harmony with the law of love. Does that make sense? And isn't this what we would
2: want? I mean, if you're deathly ill... I don't want somebody saying, oh, you look pretty good today, so you're not ill anymore. I actually want to be fixed. (laughs) I want my character to be straightened out. I want to, the bad things that are making it my life hard and me hurt other people around me, I want those to be gone. I don't want to be declared righteous. I actually want to be righteous. I want to be loving and unselfish and uh, non-damaging to myself and other people and to my relationship with God, which is,
0: and the, and, and the fact that you want to be that way is evidence of a transformed heart, of a person who's been reborn. Okay? That is the evidence. The, the unregenerate person actually doesn't want to be that way. The, un, the carnal mind um, uh, does what the carnal nature wants and validates and justifies itself in doing so. So here's another quote. This is out of Faith I Live By about righteousness. See what you think. Righteousness is holiness, likeness to God, and God is Love. It is conformity to the law of God, for all thy commandments are righteousness, and love is the fulfilling of the law. Righteousness is love, and love is the light and life of God. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. Not by painful struggles or wearisome toil, not by gift or sacrifice is righteousness obtained. But it is freely given to every soul who hungers and thirsts to receive it. What is righteousness? Love. Love. A heart to be reborn, to be recreated, to be regenerated, to be renewed, such that we love God and others more. And that's holiness. Holiness is being restored back into God's design for life, to be like God in how we live and act. Yes, Linda. Well, let
2: let me just say about the rich young ruler, for example. He came and he said, you know... um, Uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus started listing the actual commandments. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth, what else do I lack? Showing that he knew something wasn't still right. So Jesus, to the point, said, well, if you want to be perfect, you know, sell what you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Well, he didn't want to do that. Showing, in fact, that he had never ever kept the commandments at all. Because number one, he was rich and he wouldn't want to give to the poor, so he didn't love his neighbors as himself, and he wasn't willing to follow God. So he didn't love God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind.
0: So how do we apply that today? I have a patient, a couple of patients actually over the years that have come to see me with that very parable, and they're homeless and they're on the street. They have family that uh, they are not providing for because they sold everything they had, and they give it all away to charities, and they have nothing because they wanted to be righteous and they didn't want to be lost. So they were following this directive to sell everything and give everything away. And now they're homeless and they can't provide for their family. What do you tell them?
2: I'd have to think about that. What do you tell them? (laughs)
0: Well, I'm just pointing out that we tell these stories out of context or, or we hear them through the imposed law model and this then becomes a checklist of behavior that we should do. What Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, then you've got to do this and if I do this, then I'll be perfect, then I'll be saved. Well, Just because he said it to him, that doesn't mean it applies to you. That's right. He said to the woman, your faith has made you whole. Okay. okay. He's talking to that woman. He's no one talking, to you. talking to everyone. Or every- and this goes to the women's ordination thing, by the way, guys. Because people will say, well, Jesus chose 12 men. Shouldn't we follow what Jesus said? Jesus also didn't get married. Men. So every male leader in this church who wants to follow that rule shouldn't have a wife and have kids. Okay, This kind of thinking is primitive, childish. And so in the case of the rich young ruler, yes, it was appropriate for him because in that culture... Their wealth stood as evidence of righteousness. It was the proof that he was right with God. And in that culture, to give away the wealth would have required him to rest his faith or confidence or his security on something other than possessions, which is where it was resting. It wasn't actually resting on Christ or on God, it was resting on stuff. And so for him, he needed to shift his loyalties and his devotion and his faith and trust away from stuff to Christ So, remove it from you, but that may not apply to many people. There are many people, Abraham and many others who were wealthy, and you see some of the New Testament people who were converts, and they had wealth, and they didn't give it all away, though they did give much to help others, but they didn't give it all because their trust and confidence wasn't in their wealth, and they used their wealth to bless and help others. So I just point this out because we are in a battle, people. And the core root battle will always come back to the question of how do you see God's law, which directly translates in what kind of character does he have? Is he a rule giver? Is he a checklist follower? Is he somebody who's overlooking your shoulder, has to enforce and inflict punishments? Are we, is the problem with sin that we're in trouble with the heavenly authority and he'll, and he'll use power to kill us and we need to do something to assuage and appease and propitiate him? Is that the problem? Which means we really can't trust him. We've got to hide from him. We've got to cover our, our wickedness with a robe so when the father sees us, he can't look at us. Or do we understand him as creator designer and we're out of harmony and he's working with every agency at his disposal to fix what's broken in us because he loves us and wants to heal us. Two completely different versions. And when we hear stories like that, we have to think, am I hearing it through the checklist version or am I hearing it through, okay, then what was wrong with that particular person's character, heart, mind, soul, that this intervention was therapeutic for that person to bring them to restoration? And then are there people today that it might apply for? Absolutely. There are some people that it so might apply for, but that intervention won't apply for everybody. Some may use that intervention to solidify themselves in their own piousness and righteousness and they're proud of their poverty. And so they join a monastery and they own nothing. And they'll never own anything because they want to prove how pious and holy they are. I remember when I was at uh, college here in the community, many years ago now, there was one young lady who was on campus at that time who was proud of her, uh, what's the way I could say this, plainness. She would only wear the plainest of clothing. She would never do anything other than wear her hair straight. She wouldn't curl it. She wouldn't do anything to it, just straight. No makeup of any kind. no, No jewelry of any kind. Nothing because she was going to be the humble plain. And she walked around with such pride in her plainness. Proud of yeah, so proud of that. She's the proudest, humble person you ever met.
1: <laughs>
0: but you see where I'm going with that. You see the problem in that. So this is what uh, says the desire of ages. I think this is a if you ever need a go-to quote. You should memorize this one or mark it start at Star of 762. It is kind of a one paragraph summation of the entire thing. Brilliantly written. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. Why does the law require righteousness? For the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. It's how God built life to operate, and only in that way can we live. Keep on with the quote. He can Man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they have remissions of sins that are passed through the penal lie, we'll say, through the legal payment made of the blood of Jesus. That's the penal lie. This this quote says, through the forbearance of God. Our our sins are remitted from the past through God's forbearance. No legal payment, no blood atonement. By the way, I said that. Somebody will take and clip this and go, Jennings doesn't believe Jesus had to die for our salvation. He just said no blood atonement. He used those words. Therefore, he doesn't believe Jesus' death was necessary. Absolutely false. We could not be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was absolutely necessary for our salvation. It was just not necessary to pay a legal penalty to his dad. That wasn't the reason. It was for our healing and restoration. We couldn't be healed and restored without the perfection. Just what it's saying here. Developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all. Receive them. His life stands for life on the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. More than this. Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. How? By reproducing the perfect righteousness of Christ in our hearts and minds. That's how. This is where the action happens, not in a book in some distant place, off in the cosmos, in a far, far away, some corner of the universe. So, what is an effective method to break people out of the penal legal lie and help them experience the actual transformation of heart? What might an effective method be? Would it be connecting the presentation of the gospel with some aspect of human reality which? Consistently, repeatedly, obviously, daily demonstrates design law at work. Well, listen to this quote Christ triumphant, page 468. Medical missionaries and workers in the gospel ministry are to be bound together by indissoluble ties. Their work is to be done with freshness and power. By their combined efforts, the world is to be prepared for the second advent of Christ. Through their united labors, the sun of righteousness is to rise with healing in his wings, to lighten the benighted regions of the earth where the people have long lived in gross darkness, many who are now, who, who are now dwelling in the shadow of sin and death, as they see in God's faithful servants a reflection of the light of the world, will realize that they have hope and salvation and they will open their hearts to receive the healing beams and will, re- will turn in turn become light bearers to others yet in darkness. So wh- what, does, what does this describe? Is there an emerging of the gospel message or some aspect of reality which is obvious and daily? It's the healing arts. Can doctors get people well in violations of the laws of health? And what kinds of laws are the laws of health? Are they imposed rules that require judicial oversight and enforcement? Or are they the laws upon which life are built? And thus, by merging the gospel with the medical work, we n- naturally begin to teach the plan of salvation is the plan of healing. This is what our ministry does. The Common Reason Ministries weaves together design laws of life, the laws of health, and the gospel truth. That's what we do. Yes?
2: Conversely... In Matthew twenty three, fifteen, it says, Boy, do you, you teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are
0: yourselves. Brilliantly said. Do doctors try to teach people, do they try to educate people and teach people how to live in harmony with the laws of health? Sure we do. And, and the kinds of laws are the design laws, right? If patients refuse, though, to follow the medical advice and and, and won 't live in harmony with the laws of health. what happens there? Do the medical personnel inflict pain and suffering and death upon the noncompliant patients? Does the pain and suffering come from the people who are bringing the health uh, the health message and the health, health treatments? No, are there powerful lessons that apply to the plan of salvation and how sin kills? And how God through Christ heals. Are their powerful lessons? Can you see why Satan wants to separate the health message from the gospel? They want theology to be over here. They want medicine to be over here. And they're never the twain shall meet. Ellen White said in the Abilene Ad- of the Adventist Church that the schools of religion and the schools of medicine should be on the same campus and should be taught together. That's what she said. But what have we done? Well, Melinda's in California. And the seminary is in, is in Andrews in Michigan. And then we have a kind of a sub-seminary here in Collegedale. And, and, and when you talk to the professors of theology and you try to bring in these elements, they're objective. You're a doctor. We're the professors of theology. Who are you to tell the professors of theology? We're the experts in what the Bible teaches. You have nothing to offer here. You get this all the time. And the
2: fathers in the theological realm who made that bridge, were, they suffered for the decisions that they made.
0: Thank you, Karen, because your name is in my notes here. Karen me this week sent me a quote from Ellen White, one of the founders of the Adventist church, that, uh, that describes um, what happens just like a serious medical condition. If people refuse treatment, what, what happens to them and why do they die? This is about, that's from Christ's Triumph at page 103. The Spirit of God keeps evil under the control of conscience. When people exalt themselves above the influence of the spirit, they reap a harvest of iniquity. It says in Galatians, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. So that's what it's referring to here. Keep going with the quote. Warnings have less and less power over them. They gradually lose their fear of God. They sow to the flesh. They will reap corruption. The harvest of the seed that they themselves have sown is ripening. Their heart of flesh becomes a heart of stone. Resistance to truth confirms them in iniquity. All should be intelligent in regard to the agency by which the soul is destroyed. It is not because of any decree that God has sent out against men and women. Notice there's not a heavenly judge sitting up there looking over records and making a decree. That destroys the soul. That's not where it comes from. There's not any decree that God sends out. He does not make them spiritually blind. God gives sufficient light and evidence to enable them to distinguish truth from error. But he does not force them to receive truth. He leaves them free to choose the good or to choose the evil. If people resist evidence that is sufficient to guide their judgment in the right direction and choose evil once, they will do this more readily the second time. The third time, they will still more eagerly withdraw from God and choose to stand on the side of Satan. And in this course, they will continue until they are confirmed in evil and believe the lie they have cherished as truth. And this is a design law. You can call it the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it, because if you don't use it, you lose it. And so if you do something repetitively over and over again, it becomes ingrained and it becomes easy, it becomes thoughtless, it becomes mindless, you just do it automatically. You can call this the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We neurobiologically and characterologically change to become like what we esteem, admire, hold to, watch, worship, engage in. These are design laws at work here. So God presents truth to us, but he leaves us free. And when we reject the truth... And hold to a lie, and I see this on all aspects of human existence. It doesn't have to be just theological. I see this in human relationships and my counseling all the time. Somebody's got an issue with themselves, but they don't want to look in the mirror of reality and deal with that issue. So they deny it, they distort, and they project it out, and they blame others, and they become more resistant to more truth, and they become more defensive and more hostile to people who would have a, a concern even in love for them. You've seen this, right? And they become less and less capable of owning and growing. Wow, we're in the first paragraph now in Sabbath's lesson. (laughs) We just finished with the title. (laughs) One of the greatest promises of the Bible is Jesus' promise to come again. Without it, we have nothing because our hopes center in that promise and what it means for us. When Christ returns in the clouds of heaven, all that is earthly and human made and thus temporary and and at times meaningless will be swept away. After the millennium in heaven, this earth will with its wars, famines, diseases, and tragedies will be made, a new, be made new and become a dwelling place of the redeemed. Have you ever thought about what that would be like? The question, do you think Jesus in heaven right now wants to come back? Then why hasn't he? If he wants to, why hasn't he? We're
1: the
2: holdup.
0: We're the holdup, meaning Why?
2: We don't understand
0: that right second Peter three nine the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. so there's a reason and jesus said in matthew twenty four fourteen and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the world as witness to all nations, then the end will come. So the question to you, what kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached? What kingdom? What The good news of the kingdom. What kingdom is the good news to be preached to the whole world about then the end come? What kingdom? The kingdom of love. The kingdom of love. So seriously, just look at human history. Have people who have put the cross on and taken the name of Christian and gone to the world as missionaries, taken the gospel of love to the world? The gospel of our creator, the designer, whose laws operate, or have they taken an imperial dictator to the world? A God who functions no different than Caesar, who has a list of rules and will then punish you if you break his rules. A God from whom we must be... protected we must bring penance we must bring payments now maybe we can't conjure up the right payment but we have one it's given to us freely it's like uh at the offering you see an offering at church uh, when they pass the plate what do the parents do they hand their child the money and the child that has no money of their own but the parent hands them the money and then the child puts the money in the offering plate don't we don't we see this right we have nothing to bring god but that's okay jesus has got his perfect blood and he offers the perfect blood of jesus and we can take his blood and offer it to the father and pay off the father? The blood of a human sacrifice, that's what he needs, right? This view has gone to the world. This is paganism. This is Baal worship. And God is still waiting for a people to rise up and say, no, s- stop judging God to be so corrupt, so bloodthirsty, so punitive, so coercive, so dictatorial. Start seeing him as your loving creator and start worshiping him who made the heavens and the earth. This is the message, and we haven't taken it. So the world is in darkness. The whole world is intoxicated on the wine of Babylon. The ideas or theology that God is like this does intoxicate the entire world. And I won't read the quote out of Christ's object lessons I've read many times about the darkness covering the world and misapprehension of God, and the final message of mercy is the truth about God's character of love to go to the world. It's in the notes. Sunday's lesson, um, The Certainty of Christ's Return, and they quote um, Enoch's Um, words, uh, as recorded in the book of Jude, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What do you hear? That was a quote out of Jude, who was quoting Enoch. What do you hear? Do you hear a healing message or a punitive judgmental message? Well, what is the judgment? What do you understand the judgment to be? There's several judgments, by the way, but we'll talk about the one that when people think about the great white throne judgment, God sitting as judge. Uh, what, what is that? What is that? The revelation of truth. Is it a Determination that the judge is having evidence presented to him, he's opening record books, he's weighing evidences, including the evidence of the pleas of his, his son, our advocate, who's advocating on our behalf and offering a, a substitutionary payment. Is, is he weighing all this out and then making a decision which determines the destiny of people? No. That's a lie. It's not what's happening. God's judgment does not determine people's destiny. It simply confirms the destiny they've chosen. I'll give you examples. You might also say God's judgment is merely the final and accurate diagnosis of the condition of every heart and mind. That's all it is. So examples, Revelation 22, 11. The judge says, the heavenly king says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Does the word of God in saying this cause it to be this way? Or is he merely affirming and revealing for those who can't see for themselves the actual condition of those various <laughs> beings? Or here's another one. Hosea 4:17. When God says, "Ephraim is joined to his idols," Let him go. Was that a judgment? God judged the character and condition of Ephraim's heart. And he also had an intervention or a punishment, if you will. Let him go. Now, did God's judgment, Ephraim is tied to his idols, cause Ephraim to be tied to his idols? Was it the deciding factor? Was it the determining agent that the judge determined it to be so, therefore it was so? Or did the judge determine it to be so because it already was so? That's the way it was. People under the false human law construct have surrendered the authority that God has given each of us over our own eternal destiny. God has given you individuality, the power to think and to choose. He has given you free will, and it's up to you to decide whether you partake of the remedy he's provided, or you reject him, whether you trust him or you don't trust him. And as you trust him, you open the heart, and he pours in his love. He pours in his spirit. He transforms and heals you. And then when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, and he judges, you've been healed, you've been set right. But those who've rejected, he looks in and say, you've closed your heart. You're hardened in evil. That's who you are. It doesn't make it so. We talked about this song here a moment ago. I think we'll jump into Wednesday's lesson, top of Wednesday's lesson. It says, "For uh, behold, I created a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Does this mean that in heaven we'll have no memory of sin? It will not be remembered. This is what the false penal people want you to think. Will the events on planet Earth be wiped from the collective consciousness of all the intelligent beings in the universe? Will history be erased and the memories of history be erased? Why is this impossible, not possible for it to happen? Why?
2: If we didn't understand what God did for us because of our sinful state, we would would lose the appreciation of what he did for us because we wouldn't remember it.
0: There are three big reasons. One of them you stated. And it, Jesus said to, about the woman who was washing his feet with the oil, those who are forgiven much love much. So if we forget what has been done for us and, and all the Lord has provided for us and for more we've come, we ha- we lose our appreciation and love for him. It's like you have a child dying of leukemia and a doctor cures your child for free. Boy, how much do you appreciate that doctor? But then tomorrow you wake up and you forget the, the child ever had leukemia. There's no memory of it. Does your appreciation for the doctor go- diminish? He might be a great guy, you still appreciate him, but there's some levels of, of appreciation that are gone. So, right, so number one, our appreciation of love. There's two other big reasons. Our understanding of the destructiveness of sin and our memory, accurate memory of it, is primary in what's going to keep it from rising again. Bingo. It's only because we've all understood the truth of God's character and then where the deviations from God's designs lead that we will never be tempted to go down those trails. And so sin will never arise again because we all remember. But there's a third reason as well. What makes you a unique individual? Are identical twins identical beings, identical people? Are they? Why not? Why are they not identical people even if they have identical genetics? This is why clones, are, the, the whole fear of clones is ridiculous. Clones are nothing but identical triplets or identical twins. They're not identical people. Why? What makes them different? Choice. Choices which are recorded where? In, the mind. In their memories. If you wipe somebody's entire memory, are they still themselves? No. no. So if he was to wipe our memories, he wipes our identity, our individuality. None of us will be there. Okay, that's the third reason. So when you understand design law, some of these silly things that are taught, and they're taught because they live in fear. They live under the imperial model. They live under the shame model, under the guilt model, under the model that if you've done bad stuff and people find out they're required by law to punish you, and, 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 and at the minimum, maybe they won't punish you, maybe they love you, but they won't like you. They won't want to hang out with you. They'll, they'll reject you. They'll, they'll criticize you. They'll gossip about you. So in heaven, the only way we can be loved is for nobody to know all the stuff we've done. This is what you get when you get this corruption, which is in Christianity. That's why the church is an unsafe place, because people operate on that. But the 12 steps are much healthier. The 12 steps, they come in, hi, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And they're loved and they're accepted for who they are, but everyone, the whole group understands the alcoholism is a disease, it's killing you, it's not to be accepted. We're going to work as a team because we love you to free you from that. And that's what sin is in our lives. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that's why it says confess our sins one to another. But because we live in this imperial thing that we're not supposed to do bad stuff, and if you do, you should be reported, and you should have consequences. You should have to go to the principal's office. We call that the pastor's office. You have to go to the church board and get removed from your, from your offices if you've done bad stuff. You see the whole corruption. So we live in fear, and we live with our little mass, and we, and we are, are, are living with our shame. And one of the things that helps in the 12 steps that's so healing, there's, a, I think, step four, a searching moral inventory. Yes. But after the searching moral inventory you have to find at least one person and tell them every horrible, wicked, corrupt thing you've ever done. At least one. And there's a reason for that because as soon as Adam even hid sin, they ran in hid because they were afraid and they were covered with shame. Shame causes us to fear that we can't be loved. We're so horrible. We're so corrupt. We're so bad. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. So we all put on our masks we all come out in public with our public persona on. But and we appreciate the compliments. We appreciate people like it. But if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And, that, and, that, and that, that shame is corrosive. It leads us to fear and to doubt. We never really connect. And this leads back to addictive behaviors. And so part of the healing process in the 12 steps is to experience the grace and love of God through a living being who knows everything you've ever done and still accepts you. They don't accept the, the corruption. They accept you. You're not rejected. They see past the pain, past the hurt, past the shortcomings. They see what you can be and what you can become. And that is inspiring, it's healing. That's what the church is supposed to be. But the penal legal lie cheats the church from the power and the grace of God. It tells people don't expect perfection, don't expect maturing healing of the internal person. When I say perfection, that maturing of the capacity to love other people. That's biblical perfection, the mature character to love other people. Don't expect it. Don't expect a hard change. You'll be declared righteous even though you're not. Live in fear. Be sure to keep your mask on. Because at church, you know what? I'm going to say this. I wasn't, last week, somebody asked us to read out of the lesson, and what think it was Wednesday's lesson, where it talked about one of the primary functions of the church is to discipline church members. Remember that? That's what it said in this adult quarterly, okay? But there's another version of this called the, the simple language one. The simple language one. On that same day, they replaced the word discipline with punish, one of the primary reasons of the, for the church is to punish our church members. And that punishment is something we must do for those who, who are not conforming to the, to the you know, standards of the church. And you wonder why people are not genuine and honest and open and there's no real community. It's, it's the corruption you get when you replace God's design law with imposed law. So I'm just challenging you guys to to, to really think about it, meditate on it, ask how you can become more inclusive of this philosophical way of seeing reality, God's character, creator, design law, and how it actually works in every phase of human existence. Mm -hmm. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator and you've built all reality to operate in harmony with you. And it is time in human history for a people to rise up that know you and can tell the truth about you. We ask for the outpouring of your spirit on all those around this planet who are ready to take this message so that it can go forward and you can come and we can live in our new home again. We pray in your holy name, amen.